Boy, God is good, isn't He? We're in the book of Job. And uh, if you want to turn to Job chapter 27, I've been encouraging to, you to bring a, a physical copy of your Bibles simply because we're covering so much ground. Uh, if you do not have a physical Bible with you, you may look underneath the seats in front of you. There are some red books there. Those are pew Bibles that you can use um, to, to look at as we go across two chapters today. It's, it's a little harder to follow along on electronic devices. Certainly not impossible, but uh, if you have that, it may be a help to you. It's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Job, so I just want to recap the story so far. Uh, there is this man in the land of Uz who is upright, and uh, he fears God and he turns away from evil, and uh, there's no one like him in all the earth. And uh, there's a divine council meeting where uh, the sons of God meet with uh, the Lord, and the Lord says to the Satan, uh, have you seen my servant Job? And he says, oh yeah, I've seen him, uh, but the only reason he serves you is because he's a gold digger, you know, he serves you and you bless him with all this stuff. And God uh, allows him to take all of his possessions, and Job still doesn't uh, curse God. And then uh, Satan, uh, got, they meet again, and Satan says, hey, he'll, he'll give you up if you take away his health. And uh, the Lord says, uh, go ahead, take his health. can't take his life, but you can take his health. And so Job does, and... Job still doesn't curse him. Now, Job is unaware of this great meeting that's happened in the sky, and he doesn't know why he's suffering. Satan knows that Job is suffering because he's righteous, right? Job has no idea. And then along comes Job's three friends, friends. And uh, they've got some ideas. And Eliphaz uh, says that God troubles troublemakers. And so if you're experiencing troubles in your life, then you must be a troublemaker. And uh, they argue about that. And uh, we looked at Bildad and his arguments against Job and Job's response to him. Bildad was basically saying the same thing, except for he's saying, hey, look, this is how things have always worked, Job. God's not going to change things just for you. And so you must have some sin in your life. And so far, he's singing basically the same song. But these guys, they have three uh, chances to go at Job, except for Zophar. We're going to come uh, to the end of the debates, if you will, or the accusations of Job's friends. Uh, Eliphaz has gone three times. Bildad has gone three times. Zophar has gone twice. And uh, what you might imagine as we enter into this uh, chapter 27 is a silent exchange because Job has had enough and he is going to resolve. He's going to show them his resolve. He's going to tell them about his resolve to follow the Lord and why he has that resolve. But the silent part is because the other guys got to go three times. And so I imagine Zophar, he stands up and he gets ready to say, Job says, no, just no. Right. And then Zophar is like, 
well, they got to go three times. I haven't had my third shot at you yet. And Job's just like, be quiet. We're done. And so Job is finished defending himself from accusations. We know this because uh, in chapters 6, 9, 12, 16, 19, 21, 23, and 26, those chapters all begin with the phrase, then Job answered. But here in chapter 27, uh, excuse me, yeah, in chapter 27 it says, and Job again took up his discourse. And so we have something different going on. Do I have my microphone on? Okay. So, Job is finished defending himself. Zophar and his friends are sitting down. And what follows is a statement of Job's resolve to live his life in the light of the wisdom he's been given despite his circumstances. And just as a reminder, Job can't learn anything from this suffering. There's no benefit that Job can have from this suffering because Satan has laid this challenge out. Does Job serve you for no reason? And so that's that's what's going on. God is going to work something good out of this. And we'll see this towards the end of the book. So if you're here visiting today, come back so that you can hear uh, as we get through the book of Job. But let's read through Job chapter 27 and 28. We'll make a couple comments and then we'll. Uh, go into some applications. First of all, we see Job's resolve to maintain his righteousness in verses 1 through 6. And Job again took up his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right concerning Job sinning. He says, far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast to my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. Job takes an oath here. As God lives, he will not lie or be deceitful. He will not admit to doing something he did not do. He is going to maintain his integrity and righteousness. His conscience is clear. Job resolves to maintain his righteousness despite unjust suffering. But why? Why? If Job and Job doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes, he thinks God is after him and causing all of this. Why would Job continue to serve God? Well, we have reason number one for Job's resolve is the fate of the wicked, the fate of the wicked. And we see first in verses seven through 12, Job's questions regarding the hope of the ungodly. He says, let my enemy be as the wicked and let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off? When God takes away his life, will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I will not conceal? Behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? Now, it's important 
to note in verse 8 that Job is referring to when the ungodly die. For Job, this is when God's retribution comes. If you remember back to Eliphaz and, and Bildad, their arguments were retribution comes on this earth to the wicked. And Job is saying, look, a lot of what you're saying is correct. It's just not on this earth. It's when they die. What's the hope of the wicked when they die? Contrary to what Eliphaz argued in chapters four and five, your circumstances in this life are not a valid test or a reliable test of God's favor. So, again, note in verse eight, Job's referring to the to when the ungodly, wicked person dies. And there are three questions that Job asks regarding the fate of the wicked when they die. Number one, in verse nine, will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Question number two, will he take delight in the Almighty? The beginning of verse 10. And then the second part of verse 10, will he call upon God at all times? Those are the three questions that Job is going to look at. But before answering these questions, Job makes an assertion regarding the inheritance of the ungodly. Look at verses 13 through 19. He says, this is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword and his descendants have not enough bread. Those who survive him, the pestilence buries and his widows do not weep. Though he heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house house like a moth's, like a booth that a watchman makes. He goes to bed rich, but will do so no more. He opens his eyes and his wealth is gone. Just a couple notes before we move on. It says there his widows, plural, do not mourn his passing. The plural there, widows, polygamy and in our day polyamory are considered a practice of the wicked. And then note in verse 19, his last night on earth is his last night as a rich man. The possessions of the wicked will all pass away. But what about the hope of the ungodly? Here's where we find the answers to Job's questions in verses 9 and 10. We find those in verses 20 through 23. It says there, terrors overtake him like a flood. In the night, a whirlwind carries him off. The east wind lifts him up and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls at him without pity. He flees from its power in headlong flight. It claps his hands at him and hisses at him from his place. So Job's first question, will God hear his cry in verse 9? Nope. Verse 22 tells us there's no pity for the wicked. No pity for the wicked. Question number two, will he delight in the Almighty? No, he's going to be in terror in verse 20. Will he call upon God at all times? No, he's going to be gone from God's presence. For the wicked and ungodly, their best life is right now. For the righteous, this life is as bad as it gets. So live your life in light of the resurrection. Where will you spend eternity? Next, we come to a hymn to wisdom, and it's reason number two for Job's resolve. This is Job's source of wisdom. Eliphaz's source of wisdom was an encounter with a divine being. 
Bildad's source of wisdom was the way things always work according to what the fathers have passed down from previous generations. But what is Job's source of wisdom? Where does Job find wisdom for living his life? Why would he have such resolve in the face of unjust suffering? Where is wisdom found? Well, first, Job tells us about how mankind vainly goes to great lengths in effort to search out and mine precious metals in verses 1 through 11. Look at chapter 28, verses 1 through 11. A lot of this rings true to me. Now, coal, from West, I'm from West Virginia. My wife is a coal miner's daughter. Coal is not considered a precious metal, but it is a precious commodity. And so men go at great lengths to get to coal. I've witnessed that with my own eyes. I remember visiting a site where there was mountaintop removal. I saw the biggest machine I've ever seen in my life. It was called Big John, and it had these humongous tracks, uh, that, and, and it just had this big scoop. And what they would do is they would dynamite an area, and then they would scrape the dirt and the rocks off of the top of the coal and move it over. And so the, the mountain would get shifted over, and they would take the coal out of the scene. I mean, they go to great lengths to get coal. Kim's dad would climb down in areas and bolt the roof of the cave so that, uh, of the seam so that the men would be protected. Sometimes he'd be crawling on his back in order to bolt the things in narrow spaces. We're going to see some of that in, in starting in 28, chapter 28, verse 1. He says, surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep in darkness. In other words, he lights up the shafts in the caves. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. Uh, Kim's dad and the coal miners would typically drive about an hour and a half to get to their mines. It's like where nobody goes, that's where the coal is, right? says uh, they hang in the air. That means they're hanging on ropes to get down in the caves and the shafts. Far away from mankind, they swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread from grain on top of the earth. But underneath, it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. Next, we see the animal world is unaware of where precious metals are. It says in verse 7, That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eyes has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Yet mankind goes to great lengths to see what the animal world does not. Look at verse 9. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle. And the thing that is hidden, he brings out to light. You see, mankind has been quite ingenious and inventive and risky at finding precious metals. But what about wisdom? Wisdom and understanding's value is immeasurable. It's, it's more, worth more than all these metals that they're taking out of the ground. Look at verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. 
the deep says it's not in me and the sea says it's not with me. It cannot be bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels or fine gold. In other words, you can't buy it. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. But where is wisdom and understanding's location? It can't be found from mankind. Look at verse 20. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death. Abaddon being destruction. Abaddon and death say, well, we've heard a rumor of it with our ears. But verse 23, its location is only known by God. God understands the way to it and he knows its place for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And in verse 28, we find out what is wisdom and understanding. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Here we find Job's source of wisdom. The guiding principle upon which he lives his life, even when he is experiencing unjust suffering. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That is wisdom and understanding. This wisdom defines Job. In Job 1, 1, there was a man who lived in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job 1, 8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then again, in Job 2, 3, the Lord says again, Have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him and on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. This is God's guiding principle that he has given to humanity to live by. We find it in other books of the Bible. Now, we don't know exactly when Job was written or put together, but we do have other places in the scriptures that speak of the wisdom of God being the fear of God and turning from evil. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the end, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Proverbs 3, 7, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Proverbs 14, 16, one who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. Proverbs 16, 6, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, 
one turns away from evil. You see, a wise life is lived in the fear of the Lord and turning away from evil, regardless of your circumstances. Now, what can we learn about this passage in Job for our day? Well, first, Christ is the substance of who Job foreshadowed. You see, Job prefigured Jesus, who would maintain his integrity despite unjust suffering and false accusations. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus maintains his trust of, in God the Father. Mark 14, verses 32 through 36. And when they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the, how, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Before the Jewish council of the Sanhedrin, Jesus is falsely accused of many things. As Job was falsely accused of sin and the Sanhedrin eventually accuse him and convict him for blasphemy. They say, you've heard his blasphemy. And after condemning Jesus for blasphemy, then the Jewish council turns Jesus over to the Roman government and accuses him of treason. When Pilate was uh, trying Jesus and trying to find out if there were any sin in him, he sought to release Jesus. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar, accusing Jesus of treason. And then he, Pilate takes out Jesus and he says, behold, your king. And they cried out, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests cried out and said, we have no king but Caesar. Jesus is then condemned on a cross by the Romans for treason. As Job typified, Jesus led a wise life in the fear of the Lord and turning from evil despite his circumstances. But why did Jesus have to suffer unjustly? Well, that was because it was God's wisdom to save fallen humanity through the gospel. And that's what I want us to see. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Christ is wisdom for salvation. Christ is wisdom for salvation. He is wisdom incarnate. Now, Paul is writing to the Corinthians and they're arguing over who baptized them and and different things. And Paul is driving them back to the gospel, the message of the cross. That's what's important. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17 He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the what? Wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Jesus is the wisdom of God. He is wisdom incarnate. What is your hope when God takes your life? The reward of the ungodly is terror. We are like the wicked in Job 28. We have chased after and sought fulfillment in riches. We have sought pleasure and fulfillment in sexual immorality. We have sought pleasure and fulfillment in possessions and family, all while not finding full pleasure in God. Jesus died for all those times we vainly and with great effort sought earthly riches and power instead of wisdom. And I would say to you this morning, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus Christ is wisdom for salvation, but not just that. He is wisdom for life. He is wisdom for salvation, but he's also wisdom for life. Colossians 2, 3. If you want to turn over to Colossians 2, where our text will be for wisdom for life. Colossians 2, starting in verse 3. He's speaking of. In verse three, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Look down to verses six through eight. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is wisdom for life. If he is wisdom incarnate and he was wise enough to establish the plan for your salvation, then is he not trustworthy with the whole of your life? Is Jesus wise enough to follow with your life because Jesus can be trusted to be the Lord of your sexual life. Jesus can be trusted to be the Lord of your work life. He can be trusted to be the Lord of your possessions. He can be trusted to be the Lord of your circumstances. Jesus can be trusted to be the Lord of every area of your life. See, Jesus Christ is wisdom for salvation and for life. To live wisely is to fear God and refrain from evil regardless of your circumstances. And then finally, I would ask, can you say with Job, as God lives? Now, Job thinks that God has taken away his right. We know that it's Satan that's attacked him. But he says, as God lives, who has taken away my right and the almighty who has made my soul bitter as long as my breath is in me and the spirit of God is in my nostrils. My lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Christians, 
you may encounter times when it feels as if God has forsaken you. And you may think, is this what it's like to serve God? Then I might as well serve myself. Listen, sometimes life is hard, really hard. During those times, you may become disappointed in God. You may be tempted during those times to turn from God to other things for joy. Or you may try to escape your suffering through sinful means. Don't do it. In Psalm 16, two, the psalmist cried out, I said unto Yahweh, you are my master. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. There are no good things to be found away from the Lord. Oh, there's pleasure in sin for a season, but not when God takes away your breath. Beloved, we're not to live for the here and now, but for the sweet by and by. Christ walked the road of unjust suffering. He has told us that we will face the same thing. In Matthew 10, 24 and 25, John 15, 20, 2 Timothy 3, 12, he tells us in all these places that we will face persecution. But yet God delights in exalting his servants who suffer unjustly for his name's sake. It's what Jesus did. And we are like him when we do the same. A wise life is lived in the fear of the Lord and turning from evil, regardless of your circumstances. Now, for other Christians, your life may be pretty good right now. A wise life is lived in the fear of the Lord and turning from evil, regardless of your circumstances. So be grateful for God's blessings and be a true comforter to your brethren who are suffering. So we've seen today how Job resolved to live a righteous life in the face of unjust suffering. How can you and I have resolve in the midst of unjust suffering as well? By trusting Jesus as the Lord of our life. To live wisely is to fear God and refrain from evil despite your circumstances. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we... Thank you for the book of Job and how it is basically the gospel in Hebrew poetry. How it pictures the righteous sufferer suffering unjustly and how you turn that unjust suffering into redemption. Father, there are many among us who are going through different trials of life right now. And they are not sure what you are up to. And what you're doing. Some have had their health taken away. Some are having struggles with family and marriage and work. Different things, Father, that have pressed upon them. And they are uncertain why it is happening. To the best of their knowledge, there is no sin in their life that would bring on what is happening. They, like Job, are unaware of what you are up to. Father, I pray that you will strengthen their faith as you did Job's through this trial that they face. Father, that you would strengthen them and help their resolve to fear you and turn from evil despite their circumstances. Because, Father, the, the inheritance of the wicked is terrible. And yet, you have given us wisdom for how we are to live our lives. And so, by faith, We live that way. 
I pray, Father, have your way in hearts and lives. Give this wisdom to those here who are going through these trials. And then, Father, for those who are unsaved among us, who are hearing this message, I pray that you will open their eyes to the fate of the wicked and the beauty of what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross and that He is wisdom for salvation and for their lives. And I pray that they will repent of their wicked ways and that they will trust in Christ's sacrifice for their sins and trust Him to be the Lord of their life. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.